This episode of Order from Ashes is part of Shia Power Comes of Age, the transformation of Islamist politics in Iraq. This Century International Project studies the transformation of Shia Islamist politics in Iraq since 2003 and explores the implications of that transformation for religious and Islamist politics th uh, throughout the region. In the first episode of this series, I spoke with Sajad Jihad about the epochal nature of the rise and then transformation of Shia Islamist politics after the U.S. invasion. Today, I'm speaking with Marcin al-Shamari about the influence of clerics and how it's changed over the last 20 years. In the third episode in this series, I will speak with Taif al-Khudari about the protest politics of the Tishreen or October 2019 protest movement and how that has created alternatives to Shia Islamist or sectarian political uh, movements. In the fourth and final episode in this series, I speak with Ali al-Maulawi about the sectarian slurs that are sometimes levied against Shia Islamist movements and how the evolution of Shia Islamist politics has coexisted sometimes uncomfortably uh, with the history of sectarian prejudice. You're listening to Order from Ashes. I'm Thanasi Kambanis at Century International. Today, we're talking with Marcin al-Shamari about her research into the influence of clerics in Iraq, a piece of research that comes as part of a project we've been doing over the last several years that looks at the transformation of Shia politics in Iraq and the implications of that transformation for religious politics everywhere. Marcin, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's always more fun to talk about my research than to actually do it. <laughs> I bet it is. Well, you did a, 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 a whole bunch of quite uh, intense and sometimes obscure uh, digging uh, in this project. And I, I guess I want to start with what what led you to this question? Uh, the que and, and the question being, have Shia clerics in Iraq lost their authority. Uh, so what uh, what what was it uh, that made this seem um, like a, a compelling line of research for you? I mean, to be honest, this has been the central question of my entire intellectual trajectory. It's what it's been the question that's motivated my dissertation project. It's the one that motivates my current book project. It's this fascination with this religious institution, the Hausa uh, and the Manjaya in, in Iraq and their role in politics and their relationship with society. And I've been working on a lot of different uh, research projects that examine different aspects of that. And so in the last two and a half years, I've been living in Iraq, in Baghdad, and I've been witnessing firsthand the evolution of the relationship between clerics and between uh, the public. And keep in mind, I've been seeing this relationship, you know, since I was 12, um, since the early days of, of post-2003 Iraq. And what really stood out to me is that there was a time period in which you could walk around the Shia parts of Iraq, so mainly the southern parts of Iraq and large swaths of Baghdad, and a cleric would be the most venerated person on the street. And they knew this. They had this position in society that was unequal to anyone else's. And this position was given to them from years of being subjects of oppression by the former government and by, by the former regime, excuse me, and regimes before that. And then gradually over the years, I saw this change and this erosion in the way the public respected clerics. Um, and of course, I complicate this a lot in my report, but 
we reached a point in, in Iraq where you could read uh, different reports written by very respected analysts about how protest movements uh, in the Shia-dominated South were against the Shia-dominated government and how there were slogans and protest movements that criticized religion. The very famous one was Bismuddin Bagon and Haramiya and the name of religion, you know, the thieves robbed us. And this very close um, association um, to a lot of people, particularly activists, between the religious establishment and corrupt parties. Um, and then, you know, this is so much public opinion data about how religion uh, is changing in the Middle East and how religiosity is changing in the Middle East. And so when I was thinking about what to contribute to this um, special issue, to this book that we put together uh, with Century Foundation, I thought the most important question we can raise right now is how do we complicate this relationship between clerics and between the public? Is their influence truly declining? In what areas is it declining? Is it declining over the board? Um, is it declining over a particular set of actors or is it declining over everyone? Um, and is it going to decline and what does this mean for Iraq going forward? And so that's a very long route to how I reached this question. Well, and and you you come into this uh, into this debate uh, where a lot of power, a lot of people who have power have very fixed and strong ideas about this, right? So it's like, uh, from my vantage point, it seems to be an, an assumption shared by like among others, most Iraqi politicians um, that clerics have this kind of uh, not total power, but this power that is greater than anyone else's uh, to stabilize the system or to negotiate the country out of crises. Um, and it, and it and I mean your work grapples with this. That's like a an assumption that isn't actually uh, you know it's not rooted in in the complicated reality of how power and influence and clerical influence plays out. Uh, so. Um, I, I, I'd like, I'd like your take on sort of before we get into, uh, how you went about answering this question, um, how do you actually go about thinking about and measuring what, what power really is there or what influence really is there in, in, in what role clerics play versus the, the, the sort of widely held public perception that's, that's, you know, strong, but nebulous about this, this, uh, this, this sort of clerical, uh, uh, anchor to the whole Iraqi system. Yeah, you described that perfectly. I think there's these two myths that really control how um, people within Iraq and even people outside of Iraq think of the country. One of them is that there is a supremely powerful religious institution that will jump in and fix things if it really goes south. And this has been bolstered by different events like the, the religious establishment's response to the sectarian civil war, their response to ISIS, um, their response to the protest movement. But the other big, you know, dominant uh, myth is that the international community will jump in if anything goes really bad in Iraq. And this is, of course, bolstered by 2003 and then by the, by the ISIS war. So, but yeah, they're almost equal in how, how compelling they are as these narratives that you, you know, feel in Iraq and you hear about Iraq. Um, and with the one regarding the religious leaders in particular, you know, so many politicians in Iraq seek legitimacy from religious leaders through association or, you know, by seeing to be legitimized by them or in one way or another. And they just think of them as having this tremendous authority uh, to move the population. 
to behave in certain ways to or to stop certain kind of behaviors. And they've been reaching out to clerics from the start, particularly the Shia parties uh, have been reaching to clerics from the beginning, uh, from 2003 and onwards, to try to grasp some of that legitimacy and use it. And they do it in different ways. You know, some of them just try to be seen with them or try to be upholders of them or to be like very visibly respectful of them. Um, others will outright use, you know, clerical associations and names or they're from clerical families and they'll try to use that authority. Um, but in, in many ways, this has continued while this, the public has shifted. Well, so uh, I, um, I have this question that I, I want to ask and I'm like a little bit uh, sh- shy and reluctant because it's like a stupid question, but I think it's like, it's worth airing it somehow, like in the, certainly in the mind of, of Americans and, and frankly, in the minds of, of some outsiders and, and Iraqis who are skeptical or fearful of, uh, religion and politics, there's always this, uh, uh, implicit or sometimes explicit comparison to Iran. Right. And, and so, you know, the, the idea is that in Iran, there's Walat al-Faqih, there's this direct rule by clerics and, uh, and there's this implication, which I think is, is, you know, not founded in anything tangible, but that, that floats around or, or in sometimes is levied directly that Iraq has like a latent Walayat al-Faqih constituency, you know, this very powerful, uh, uh, clerical network of clerics and schools and, and influential thinkers and political players that somehow that this establishment, this Shia establishment is a Walayat al-Faqih in the making or in waiting. Um, and, this is more like a, Hey, do you want to, you know, do you want to debunk that? Or do you want to explain why that's not the right way to look at this and, and put, put that to rest as, as, as we move forward? I'll start by telling you that I have an Iraq conference bingo sheet and the Iran and Wilayat al-Faqih is on it. So, no, no, but, you know, jokes aside, it's a very important question and there's a reason why people always ask about it. So it's impossible not to compare the countries. They're neighbors and they share a lot of cultural and religious affinity. Um, And there's several things I tell people who are concerned about this latent Wilayat al-Faqih theocracy ala Iran and Iraq. The first is that in, in Iraq it will be extremely difficult to have that develop for so many reasons, including chiefly that the religious establishment in Iraq itself has a different vision for a relationship with the state than the religious leadership in Iran, despite ties between them. the ideology behind the most important thinkers and the most important leaders of the institution doesn't align with creating a state like Iran. And I mean, I'm not going to go into the details of Wilayat al-Faqih, but for me, this is a baseline. But we know that ideology isn't necessarily the most motivating thing in politics. I mean, there's a lot of research about how strategic motivations always trump ideological motivations. Um, From that perspective, I think the big fear for a lot of people looking at Iraq isn't that Najaf will evolve into this entity in the next 40 years that makes it mimic Iran, but rather that with the passing of Grand Ayatollah Sistani, Iran will be able to exert more influence over Iraq through taking over Najaf through through clerical networks. And that is something I hear, um, 
you know, much more often than the natural development of Iraq. And, you know, that stems from a lot of fears of Iranian intervention in, in Iraq. But I will say that it doesn't keep me up at night at all. First, because I think of Najaf as having sustained itself and its independence through much more difficult times and through much more extensive pressures than anything that the Iranian state can uh, can emit. So it socializes these clerics for years. It creates a specific kind of cleric and it perpetuates itself and the system uh, very efficiently and has done so for centuries and will continue to do so. So Najaf will outlive a lot of other institutions and it doesn't change very fast. So we shouldn't expect, you know, this dramatic change on Iraqi politics because of Najaf. So you just referred a minute ago to a, a, a shift in in public opinion. Um, so what what has uh, what is the what is the shift that's taken place in the way the Iraqi public and and presumably uh, you mean a, somehow a, a, a Shia identifying public or clarify what what sort of what public you mean? What shift has taken place in their their view of of clerical authority? Yes, yeah, so I'm talking about the Shia population um, in Iraq. And if you look at the way that the Shia population in Iraq interact with clerics in the last 20 years, there's been, you know, to put it in the words of one cleric, the holy man is no longer holy or the turbaned man is no longer holy. So there is less of a reverence and respect for clerics than there was 20 years ago on the Iraqi street. And to me, this is part of a... A natural cycle, first of all, of rising and falling religiosity throughout the region, but it's also a result of um, a result of a generational shift in Iraq, where after 2003, we also had a big change in population uh, with, you know, with more youth than ever in Iraq today. And so these youth don't look at these clerics as the opposition leaders of, you know, of pre-2003 Iraq or the, you know, or the victims of Ba'athist oppression, they don't venerate them for these reasons, but they see them as being complicit in a state largely run by Shia Islamist actors who get authority from the clerics and hold them accountable and blame them for this. So I see it as something that ebbs and flows with time, but I also see the religious establishment reacting to it because a lot of their authority stems from from the street, from people actually saying that these are spiritual guides and we respect them. Um, And so I think they are working actively to remedy some of the damage from the last 10 years. I'm talking to Marcin Al-Shamari, who is a research fellow at the Middle East Initiative at Harvard's Belfer Center. She's talking about her research into uh, the changes uh, in Iraqi clerical authority. And you can read her uh, fantastic report about uh, uh, this research uh, at the Century Foundation if you go to tcf.org and search for Shia clerics in Iraq haven't lost their authority or just go to the Century International page, you'll find it. Uh, We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I am Zainab Shukar, and I lead the research on climate change and environmental degradation at Century International, where I work on a project titled Living the Climate Emergency Lessons from Iraq, which explores how the case of Iraq can help policymakers and researchers create an action plan for the climate crisis, which is already here. Our climate emergency project will connect field researchers, policymakers, and a wider audience through a series of roundtables, public events, 
podcasts, as well as reports. So I grew up in Iraq and I've seen um, firsthand the direct human impact of environmental degradation. And I believe that we need to understand the historical context in order to map the human impact of climate change and environmental degradation. Only then, I believe we can make projections about the future and propose solutions. And so to learn more, you can find Century International's climate research at the Century Foundation's website, gcf.org. Welcome back. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. I'm talking to Marcina Shamari about her research into the authority of Shia clerics. You can find a link to her report into the episode notes. Uh, I encourage you to read it. Uh, so Marcin, uh, you were you were talking uh, right before the break uh, about that shift in public opinion that's come uh, for a variety of reasons, including demographic shifts uh, post-2003. Uh, and I guess... Uh, can you tell us, like, in your in your view, what like how does the authority work, right? If it's not if it's not that um, if it's not a, a cleric standing up on Friday and telling people how to vote and then they all go uh, and, and obey, how does this sort of soft power version of of uh, of clerical authority play out in 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 real time in contemporary Iraq? So in the report, I break down authority into different types. I talk about both direct and indirect authority, and I talk about who this authority is over, whether it's over the population or it's over the political elite. And the way authority works with clerics is that I, I define it as the ability to move people to actions and beliefs without the use of coercion. Uh, and the way that I, I view it in happening in the Shia clerical establishment is that Having individuals from society have enough respect and enough confidence in clerics to follow them in their daily life is, you know, one aspect of authority and it's religious authority. And it's something that doesn't really have a huge uh, impact on politics because it's a cleric's authority to tell someone, you know, when is the ho- when are the holidays starting and, you know, how to pray and things that are very basic like that. But the kind of authority that we saw in post-2003 Iraq is that there are these statements from clerics about how important it is to vote. And sometimes there's these indirect suggestions of, um, you know, what's good for the country in terms of which political actors are good for the country. And they really move the country in very important ways. Um, And this was something that was particularly stark right after 2003 and died down since. Um, But the realm of religion and practices and the realm of political behavior are two different ways to look at clerics' authority. And what I'm arguing is that the, the political authority has decreased, but it's also decreased because clerics have decided to exercise it less because they see it as as having been detrimental to their reputation, but a lot of the religious authority aspect over, you know, things that they've always commented on has stayed pretty much uh, the same. Uh, the role of clerics in that hasn't really shifted. And the other thing that's really happening is that we used to see much more visible and direct manifestations of clerical authority in the public sphere, um, where 
you know, elite clerics made things very known to the Iraqi population, even when they were directed towards politicians. And more and more now it's happening uh, behind the scenes and without the population really knowing about it. Like what's an example? And the biggest example of this is what they call the, and I wrote about this, the Najaf veto, which is basically um, the ability of the religious establishment to either sanction or not sanction a candidate for the premiership. Um, you know, they have to, in one way or another, approve of the candidate. Um, but that doesn't really happen in a very forthright manner. It's always behind the scenes. Another example is recently uh, in, in late August when there was an armed confrontation between Muqtada Sadr and members of the Popular Mobilization Forces. There seemed to be some kind of um, de-escalation that happened overnight. And there was a lot of rumors about how the religious establishment got involved in it. But there was never any outright castigation or any outright statement from the religious establishment of this Um so they've become very intentionally distant from public displays of intervention. I mean, it's, it, I find I find your your research into this and your dis discussion of it really interesting because, you know, f for me, the I mean, the Iraqi system is uh, tremendously opaque, right? I mean, ultimately, there there are these key key historical moments where we never fully know. You know what? What actually happened? You know, did uh, did the crisis uh, this summer pass because of somehow Sistani quietly intervening to talk Muqtada Sadr down from from his maximalist confrontation? Um, and there's you know there's many chapters like this where uh, there, there there you know there's bits of evidence, bits of bits of theorizing, and we we really don't know. And the people who could, you know, who could feasibly shed light on it, you know, don't don't want to uh, sort of lift lift the curtain back. Um, and when I think about the trajectory of, of sort of clerical power, uh, there's a couple of key episodes that 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 come to mind for me in which I want to quickly sketch out and see how they fit into your thesis. So, you know, the the two big ones are after the invasion and when the you know the occupation began, there was a a lot of discussion of how long it would be until uh, the Americans turned over power to Iraqis. And uh, uh, Grand Ayatollah Sistani, among others, made clear that uh, uh, they would not support anything short of of a quick move to Iraqi sovereignty. And that was at least by the Americans portrayed as their uh the main reason why they very quickly uh moved to uh uh to hand over power and and have the the, the first elections um and the second key moment was uh after the 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 sort of uh zenith of uh the apex excuse me of 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 ISIS's extension over Iraq um the polit the entire political system turned to the Hausa for legitimacy uh, in, in sort of reconstituting some kind of coherent response to, to, to this threat. Um, and those are both in a way, uh, you know, those aren't moments where clerics are being asked to, to shape power. They're being asked to legitimize uh, already widely held beliefs, um, and they play this sort of important final step in uh, coalescing uh, like a, mo a mobilized response by a variety of, of actors, including the political system and the public. Uh, but in none of these cases was someone from the from the clergy saying, this is what the country should do, or this is how the political system should do X, Y, and Z. Uh, so, you know, like, do, was it a misunderstanding uh, along the way for people to think that somehow 
uh, uh, clerics had more sort of direct constructive power than this, or or is this does this sort of uh, buttress your analytical framework that 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 suggests the way in which influence played out always was more uh, you know more subterranean, more about like uh, maybe putting the thumb on 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 the scale when things are already tilting in a certain direction, and less about directing events. Clerics are always acting, in, in my research from what I found, they're always acting to preserve the status quo as much as possible. And by the status quo, I mean working to preserve stability. And so oftentimes in these critical moments in which you're completely right, by the way, there is a general push in the direction, uh, they, they really just legitimate what is happening um, and what's going to happen and what's being pushed for by everyone, elites and public alike. And the way we really see this actually is in the, in the Civil War, because at that time, because of the public anger and the amount of violence that was happening, particularly after the bombing of the Askari Shrine, the very important Shia Shrine in Samarra, Sistani's statements basically fell on deaf ears. This is February 2006, the catalytic event of the sectarian civil war, for our listeners who aren't in the know. His his, uh, attempts to de-escalate sectarian tensions really were not well received. And it really does show the limits of, of clerical authority, that it can't really push the population anywhere past where it wants to go. Like, it really can't change the course. Um, it can't change the course of public demands or citizen demands, but it can, what it can do is mediate and find solutions and make things more peaceful as they transition. And it can also provide that kind of moral support that we saw during the ISIS war and that very important moral legitimation for a struggle. And so I actually think you're exactly right in that description. It wasn't that they shaped politics in a particular way as much as they eased politics in a direction that it was going. And we do see examples of how they can't push against the current public opinion too much. It's both not within their ability to do so, but it's also counterproductive to, to them to do so because the more it looks like they can't influence the public or that they can't influence political elites, the less they're their position appears in society, the more the weaker they look. Um, and it's important to maintain that balance. How does this play out on corruption where the Marjaya has, has regularly sort of messaged against corruption and the system has <laughs> completely ignored any efforts to reform itself? No, corruption is a perfect example of, of where there's limitations to their ability to influence. And I think this is going to be the big issue for them to distance themselves for, uh, from Sorry, in the future. So, for example, think about 2019, the widespread protest movements in the South uh, that looked like they were going to destabilize the country. The religious establishment was able to intervene, to mediate, and to move the country to um to a new electoral law, to early elections, to all these mechanisms that preserved the status quo and kept everything um, kept everything comfortable. At the same time, they also started to meet with politicians less. They started to forge more relationships with uh, activists and with civil society leaders. And in that way, they you know they mitigated that crisis. But when it comes to corruption, for years, they've actually talked about it in their sermons. 
Um, and you know, nothing new repeatedly mentioned, even when it's not on top of you know citizen agendas or what protesters are calling for. It's something that they've spoken about. But what's going to be difficult for them to navigate in the future is that there's all these institutions that are affiliated you know, whether truly affiliated or perceived to be affiliated with them that are complicit in corruption. Um, and this is something they're going to have to contend with in the future. And I frankly don't know how they're going to manage it. Uh, but, you know, we'll wait and see. And as an example, this is basically the, um, the business organizations that revolve around the shrine institutions in Karbala. Um, and these organizations basically control the economic life of the entire city. And, you know, anyone who goes to Karbala can hear talks about corruption and about nepotism and about, about how involved these shrine-associated businesses are uh, in, in the economy of, of the city and how much they are uh, predatory actors in some ways. And I think these... These associations are the new ones that they're going to have to deal with because in the past they were dealing with the association of Islamist parties and they've managed now to, to find a way out of that association. And now this is going to be the next step for them. And to their credit, they have been talking about this repeatedly in the past, even when it wasn't you know, an issue that's at the top of everyone's agenda. Did uh, I know we talked about this at some point, and I'm trying to remember what your, what your general finding on this was. Was there at some point... Uh, 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 a sort of move for actual active you know, active duty clerics, that's the wrong way to put it, uh, to go to enter directly into politics, to sort of, you know, leave the leave the house and go run for office and run for parliament. Did, did, did that happen and then sort of not work? Or what, what was the deal with that kind of direct participation? No, I mean, you have to remember that the house is an academic institution and it doesn't really encourage leaving that that pursuit and becoming a politician. And there's never been a concerted effort by any serious scholars to create a class of uh, a politician, you know, of political clerics. The clerics we see in parliament and the clerics we see in the political scene are, you know, are outliers and they're actually not very central to the religious establishment. Um, and I'm actually working a bit on this um, in my book so I can preview it with a little bit of authority that um, most, if not all, of the MPs that are clerics in Iraq are very distant from the religious establishment in, um, in reality, but draw a lot of their um, authority and their credibility within their parties by this um, supposed association with the, with the elites and the clerical establishment. So it's, it's a relationship that's not reciprocal. Um, so no, they actually never, never have done a concerted effort to do this. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's a big gap between uh, how how this is understood in the sort of distant popular imagination versus like people who are more carefully studying the the nuance and, and reality of politics. So for an outsider, they'll see you know men with turbans who have power and think that those are clerics in politics. You know, whereas. Uh, I, you know, we we would not understand Muqtada Sadr or uh, Amar al Hakim or uh, uh, you know the the leaders of Asab al Haq or some of these other factions to be clerics in politics. Uh, uh, although, yes, you know, some of them have some amount of clerical learning, and the, you know, these are uh, men who use the 
the optics of a turban to imply some kind of religious legitimacy, but in fact, they are not part of a religious establishment and it, it confuses the issue. Uh, and I think sometimes that confusion is, is like, you know, instrumentalized in bad faith by people who, uh, who are trying to, uh, create a certain idea about religion and politics. And in other cases, it's confused in good faith by people who are, you know, trying to, trying to understand what they see and not, not, quite understanding what the what the difference between these different types of actors in, in in politics are i mean yes and it's very understandable i can you know you you can't really blame someone for making that assumption especially since the religious establishment doesn't make an effort at um at signaling the distance between themselves and and these clerics when you speak to them they'll tell you of course we're not politicized of course we don't believe that a cleric's role should be in politics like this isn't our purpose but it's only when you ask them there is no um no proactive means of of distancing themselves from this so i want to end uh on a on a thematic question that relates to the the sort of theme of the work we did together the last couple of years in this Shia politics working group. Um, and I want to ask, do, like what, uh, what broader lessons, if any, do you take for how uh, people, especially researchers and analysts should think about relig religion in politics? Like what, what are the big complicating takeaways uh, from your, your uh, uh, deep look at the case study of Iraq uh, for, for the broader framing of questions about this relationship? That's a very good question. So I think there's two. The first one is one that I think a lot of a lot of scholars um, more generally are moving in this direction, but I really highly encourage it for analysis on Iraq, which is to always think carefully about what you mean when you speak of clerical authority uh, and to be precise about what kind of authority and who is it over. And the second one, which relates to this, is about the way we conduct research. So I've been noticing a lot of surveys and a lot of uh, evidence gathering from various think tanks and, and groups uh, about public opinion towards religion in Iraq. And I hate to say this, but I'm yet to see a survey that doesn't look like it's priming its respondents with the biases of the think tanker. And it's, you know, <laughs> you spend at least $20,000 on these surveys. Why on earth would you be priming uh, your interviewee or your, um, or your respondent in this way? I mean, so yeah, my, my second point is uh, please, please, you know, pilot your surveys, make sure you're not priming them by your assumptions about religion. In what um, direction in are Iraq. these surveys uh, pushing the, the results? I mean, to be honest, I don't know if this is like an intentional desire to push a certain narrative about Iraq or if it's just plain incompetence. Um, but it's it basically designs the survey around how the researcher views what's going on in the country. So if they see the country as being, you know, divided by, between, you know, say Tishreen and, and the theocratic Iranian model, that's how it will present answers to the respondent. Like, do you want to be Iran or do you want to be Tishreen's democracy? Mm -hmm. Rather than rather than leaving enough nuance and enough variation in there for people to be able to express something that actually might not be this or that because 
their experience as Iraqis who live in Iraq might be completely different from, you know, your experience as a researcher observing Iraq from Washington or London or, you know, wherever. And to me, it's just a big waste of resources because surveys are very expensive. They're actually very draining on the local population as they're happening repeatedly. So the more surveys you do in a country, um, the more used to being surveyed the population is, particularly if you're looking at small communities, like Mosul really comes to mind here. <laughs> and they're, they're also used extensively by, you know, by important organizations and by influential organizations to legitimate or not legitimate certain practices. Um, and they can be very harmful if, if they're primed intentionally in certain ways. And, you know, I'm going to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and assume that it's just based on an understanding of Iraq that isn't that isn't as in-depth as it should be. But I really, really caution against the sloppy research. Well, I think that's a that's a great warning to end on. Um, and I and, you know, I'm I'm a big evangelist for you know, drilling deep down into cases and then being really open to what the implications are for our wider understanding. And I actually think the the way in which religion and religious politics plays out in Iraq has a lot to teach us about how we think about the connections between uh, faith and political behavior in in every context, especially in pluralistic republics that, that have some of the uh, similar uh, or parallel conditions. Uh, I encourage all uh, of the listeners to uh, of Order from Ashes to take a look at, at Marcin's report, which is an excellent read. Uh, again, you can find the link in the episode notes, or you can uh, go to it on the Century Foundation's uh, Century International page, tcf.org. Uh, Marcin El-Shamari from the Middle East Initiative at Harvard's Belfer Center, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Thanasi. It's been really fun. Look forward to reading uh, what you do next. And uh, listeners, uh, you'll find uh, in this series uh, a group of related podcasts uh, that that explore different aspects of our Shia politics working group, which looks at the relationship between religion and politics in Iraq and its implications for uh, religion and politics more widely. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.